0: Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed.
1: and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, August 3rd, 2012. This week, episode 254 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Joining us from Studio C will be the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Got you on the line? Oh, we got Cliff muted. We got to bring him off off the mute button there, Val. Number three. And at the controls is our engineer, Roxy V. Val Bender.
2: Hello. Yeah.
1: Of course, joining us from Carnegie will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio Trivia Question and interview with Carl Grimes and Don Weeks. I was looking back and uh, it's been quite a while since Don joined us October 2010. Carl was last here in June of 2011. And uh, we're going to talk about the Healthy Indoors Conference they just came back from in Australia. We're also going to, of course, have a roundup with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com.
3: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at
1: ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com
3: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and
1: products. Okay, of course, to listen to the show, just go to iaqradio.com. You've got the link at the top that says go to the show. Of course, you can either stream the show from our homepage or download it at that link or from iTunes. We also have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, let's thank the IAQ Training Institute for their assistance in providing the show. That website for the most current dates for the training you trust is iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question.
0: Thanks, Joe. You won a cool prize by out fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in your answer. Congratulations. To John Tier. Microshield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, for being the first listener to identify fresh, bloat, active, and advanced decay and dry remains as the five general stages used to describe the process of human decomposition. The IEQ Radio trivia question for Friday, August 3, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. TRSCA is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at www.trfca.org. Now for this week's trivia question, what is the meaning of the word Australia? Back to you, Joe.
1: Okay, thank you, Cliff. This week's guests are Don Weeks. Don is the uh, with Indoor In-Air Environmental. He's their certified industrial hygienist, has been providing environmental and occupational health and safety assistance for more than 35 years. He's got a bachelor's degree in environmental science from Ramapo, New Jersey, and a master's in occupational safety and health from New York University. He is a partner in In-Air. They're located in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, He's been affiliated with the American Industrial Hygiene Association as a past chair of their Indoor Environmental Quality Committee, and as a fellow of the association. He's also a uh, current treasurer. I think I'll have to check on this. Current treasurer of the Ottawa River chapter for ASHRAE, the American Society for Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning. Engineers, and he is also, as of yesterday, the president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. He's been a member of the ISIAC, International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, and a past vice president for practice of that organization, and a four-time recipient of the American Industrial Hygiene Association's bestseller award, for his work on several publications including the most recent recognition evaluation and control of indoor mold also known as the green book carl grimes is the president of healthy habitats a private consulting company in denver colorado he's been providing ieq consulting services for over 20 years his specialty is clients most others don't want because they are hypersensitive to low levels of exposure with sometimes extreme reactivity. Carl is the past president of IAQA, as of yesterday, the author of Starting Points for a Healthy Habitat. He also writes opinion columns for Indoor Environment Connections and serves on their editorial advisory board. He, uh, let's see, he's a member of numerous industry associations and has served on dozens of committees working on improving the lives of people. Welcome, Don and Carl. Do we have, oh, we got to unmute both of the guys. Oh, we're going to have music first.
2: Whilst Matilda is a song about an Australian hobo, I guess you'd call him, he wanders through the bushland of Australia and he takes all his meager belongings wrapped up in an old blanket, which is strung across his shoulders with an old piece of twine. And this is called his swag, hence the name swagman. Now, affectionately or otherwise, he refers to this swag as Matilda. It's like his only companion, and as he wanders through the bush tracks, he finds himself talking to it as if it's a real person. So the term waltzing Matilda has nothing to do with dancing at all. It means, in fact, carrying this thing on your back through the long, lonely stretches of the Australian bush.
1: I didn't know that. Good job, Cliff. <laughs> Welcome, Carl. Don? Yeah, they're welcome.
2: Yeah, uh, we hear we heard a lot of walking Matilda down in, uh, in 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 Australia. That's for sure. I'll
1: bet. Well, hey guys, that I we appreciate having you on again, and let's jump right into the Australia thing. Uh, let's start. Uh, what, what you guys made this the easiest week of preparation on on my IAQ Radio uh, stint here over five years, because we sat down and said, hey, let's get. Your top two or three impressions from the Healthy Indoors uh, conference, and Don, let's start with you. Maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about what Healthy Indoors is and uh, what you maybe your top impression from this year.
2: Okay, um, Healthy Buildings Conference, uh, Healthy Buildings 2012 is um, is a part of a series of Healthy Building conferences that go back to uh, the 1980s. Um, up until this particular conference, they're held every three years. Uh they're a, a, an official conference of ISIAC, uh, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality. Um, and they have been run all over the uh, the world. Uh, the one before this in two thousand nine was run in Syracuse, New York. And, and going and going back before that there were there were there were ones in Finland and, and in Bethesda, Maryland and other places as well. Um it uh it, it is intended to be more of a practical or a, a practitioner type of conference. However, most of the presentations are very much oriented towards the researchers, and we had a, uh, about five hundred and fifty uh, attendees at the conference this year, uh, with the largest contingency from uh, from Japan, with a, followed by by uh, Australia and then China, and about forty people from uh, from the United States. So it was uh, it was very it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. Brisbane is a beautiful city and um, and the conference had uh, a fair amount of really good topics the two that i picked out for for discussion today uh one is uh, with regards to a combination of phthalates and um, and uh, svocs or semi volatile organic compounds uh the chemical pollutants area is uh, is a is a growing concern in homes offices public places uh throughout the world and um, there There's measurements that uh, people are doing in, in in a variety of different locations, uh, including uh, in crib mattresses uh, in um, in uh, various uh, dampness uh, areas uh, where there's uh, indoor phthalate concentrations in the visible mold. Uh, there's also in settled dust, there's also phthalate emissions from building materials. So there's a fair amount of work going on in this area right now. Uh, the The researchers have been spending a great deal of time looking into where these materials uh, come from most of the time they come from products that are that are brought into the home or brought into the uh, the workplace and then start to emit over a period of time and then be can become settled out into the uh, the dust itself. So uh, SVOCs, um, a lot of the SVOCs are are related to uh, chemicals again that are brought into the building, but sometimes they're also associated with with waste. So there's a fair amount of that kind of of work being done on. Um, has waste sites, but also it becomes an issue of indoor air quality when these materials become airborne and then settle out into various buildings again—homes, uh, schools. Um, there, there was a fair amount of studies about uh, uh, problems in schools, uh, also in office buildings. In that that regard, uh, the focus in the in the uh, in the in the southeast part of, of Asia is really on that air and on those types of pre- uh, problems that are that are happening. These building materials, consumer products, furnishings all have a variety of different uh, chemicals which emit um, out into the uh, environment. One of the biggest ones that, are, that is happening with SEOCs right now is fire fire retardants, and people are very concerned about that because of the concerns that uh, these are used in almost every big uh, material that is brought into house as well as into clothing. Uh, so there's a lot of discussion about how to deal with that. And also, obviously, there's a conflict because you're going to be dealing with with uh, fire retardants. Say, say, for example, used in children's clothing or children's uh, pajamas. How do you take that out and and potentially subject kids to uh, problems with fires versus the chemical exposures that you might be having? So those that that was two areas that I looked at. But the third, I'm um, just for briefly, the one that I thought was most interesting actually was the smartphone applications. I have a, a professor at the University of Sydney, and I was just looking up his name. I haven't been able to find it here in the in the paperwork that I have here. That was talking about a theoretical case where he would use smartphones uh, to monitor indoor air quality uh, issues. Uh, he, he indicated, and I think I believe this has been borne out, that about 50 of, percent of people who are in in in, in industrial or developed countries uh, carry a cell phone almost continuously, day or day after day. His concept, on a a theoretical basis, was to take this uh, uh, device that everybody's uh, wearing and turn it into a a measuring uh, uh, device for a variety of indoor air quality uh, contaminants. Feed that information into the automatic uh, automated system for ventilation, or in the building, and then be able to vary the ventilation system in such a way that the any uh, problems that may exist in a particular area may be uh, addressed uh, almost instantaneously in that regard. Uh, he's also using that potentially for, for, for looking at health problems as well in, 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 um, in folks that might have uh, exposures or have complaints about indoor air quality. By uh, using the smartphone, having an app for that, and, and basically uh, turning it into a sampling device, it would be, uh, be a unique way of being able to track what is exactly happening in a building and be able to make changes in the building's environment rapidly and also to track potential health problems that people might have in those buildings if, in fact, they have complaints about the indoor air quality. So those are my 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 top uh, uh, papers that are better, I that uh, I that I remember from the conference.
1: We'll go into a little more detail on those with you in a moment. Uh, but let's let's get Carl's top two or three, and then what I'd like to do is go back and let, give Cliff a chance to ask a question. Carl. All
4: right. Thank you, Joe. And uh, hello, Don. <laughs> uh, hello, Tom. Just, <laughs> just yesterday. Um, so uh, i'm I'm kind of hung over on the jet lag. I think you recovered better from it than i did than i did don um my Don gave an excellent description of the of the conference itself, and what I would add kind of over the, the bigger picture is that uh ISIAC, or uh, the Indoor Society of, uh, or the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, has other series of uh, conferences they put on. For example, last year was Indoor Air 2011. It's, it's, it's similar, and a lot of the same researchers. They're A little bit different focus from unhealthy buildings this year, and uh, last year uh, Indoor Air was in the U.S. in Austin, Texas, and. Um, you were there, Joe. In fact, the last time you had me on, it was you. there was the two of us talking about that particular conference and how what a massive amount of information was presented from these researchers. They were bringing in uh, more of the practitioners uh, to that particular one. Then, uh, Healthy Buildings is uh, oriented more toward the for, toward the practitioners, anyway. How do you take all this research and? and uh, use it in the field. And that's part of of my function now on the ISIAC board is, you mentioned that Don was vice president of practice a few years ago. I'm the current vice president of practice, and the the board has specifically tasked me with developing methods or programs, relationships or something to increase that flow of information from the um, lab into the field so it's usable in the field and also, how do you take the information that we know in the field, in our particular way and context, um, and and needs and point of view, and convey that information to researchers in a language they understand? Because the field and the research lab are, are two different cultures, two different um, two different outlooks, and we don't all use the same words in the same way. So this particular conference was. Um, it, 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 had as many pro- programs, I think, and presentations as Texas last summer, uh, but it was it was also just uh, overwhelming. So I was glad to hear what Don was saying and, and uh, some of the some of the events that he attended because couldn't get to them all. So one thing I would like to go back to and just add to what Don said about the chemicals and the the VOCs, but the, but the semi volatiles. Um, is a, a specific um, presentation by Charlie Wessler. Now, I, I'm i more familiar with him with his work on ozone. And about a year ago, through ex publication, Indoor Air, um, one of the studies that he was the lead on was looking at ozone on surfaces, not up in the air like we think, which is breathable, but how does ozone interact on a surface. He gave a couple of presentations and I talked to him later about, you know, I see a theme here. you really focused on the boundary layers, the surface of contents in a um, in a building. And this is what he was talking about with boundaries. And in this particular case, it was the skin. Now, the skin kind of like the outside of a building and, and uh, the walls and the roof, and the, it separates, it isolates somewhat the inside from the outside. But what he was looking at was... There's a boundary layer on top of the skin, and it has a strong effect on the absorption of chemicals through the skin. Now, we used to think that, or others used to think that the skin was a pretty good barrier against chemicals, but we all know about the the nicotine patch now and how we get the nicotine administered to the body to help people stop smoking and going through the skin. Similar, similar technique with the number of pharmaceuticals now, uh, particularly uh, hormone replacement therapy. It's through the skin. So he and his group was looking at that, and the conclusion that they found measurable was when you look at chemical exposure and, you know, the potential effects on people that are breathing this in, inhalation, of course, is the major route of exposure, but he found that as much as an additional 40% comes through the skin. The other part of that was that the skin of infants and the elderly are have a higher transmission rate of chemicals through the skin than people in between that. And, of course, we've always heard that the most vulnerable um, segments of the population are infants and the elderly. So... This is the way some of this uh, lab research is, is, is fitting into the practice. The other one was uh, Jan Sundell. Uh, he facilitated a, a fascinating symposium where there were presentations on the indoor environment and health from eight different countries. And it was fascinating to see what was in common but what wasn't. The difficulty was not all the countries measure the same things, or in the same ways. Some, one country may measure asthma rates, for example, of years one through five. Another one would be one through six, and another one be from infancy, um, and another one, you know, they take up to an older age. So it's really hard to correlate the data from a, a, a massive amount of uh, data and have it really be relevant to each other. Which brings me then to the uh, to the um, one of the points that Don made about cell phones. I I wasn't able to attend that one. I I had there were two other presentations that uh, were on at the same time I wanted to be to, and between me and my evil twin, I could only get to two of them. So I wasn't able to get to Don's. Um, this I think is going to be huge. Not not just so that we can get more data, but The other characteristics is we get data from a a large number of areas. It's like crowdsourcing, if anybody uh, listening is familiar with uh, how Google and Facebook and other people get a lot of data. Uh, Medicine is moving in that direction. There's a book uh, by Eric Topol at the Scripps Institute called The Creative Destruction of Medicine. It's all about digitizing medicine digitizing the human genome a genome digitizing exposure uh, this is this i think is the next big frontier not only in medicine and society but also for the indoor air quality because we have these massive amounts of data possible with instruments that are i've seen some where they actually plug onto like an iphone or an android and they can measure they can they, with, with sophisticated math, they can they can tell you what your activity is based upon body movements from the from the um, the gyroscopic uh, accelerator thing that's in the that's in the iPhone confidence on that to go into more detail but that is really really exciting and uh, finally, uh, Dr. James Scott, who presented at the IAQA National Conference in March in Las Vegas.
1: And Uh-oh. We lost Carl, and I'm not sure if we lost me. Let's try Cliff. Cliff, are you still on? Joe, Joe can you hear me? It's yeah, north. could you hear Carl? No. Okay, Carl I got Carl. cut off. I... Don, you're still there? I am here. Great, uh, Carl lost his connection. We were having a little trouble with feedback from his connection, anyway, so he'll be calling back in in a moment. Cl- Cliff, let me let me turn it over to you. Do you have any follow-ups for Don? I,
0: I I do actually, Don. Um, you know, because people attended this event from all over the world, I was really interested in what differences of concern there would be for indoor air quality among uh, different parts of the world? Like how would other hemispheres differ in what their concerns are to what our concerns are, are in North America?
2: Well, they are kind of very different in, in in the part of the world in which uh, Australia is a part of, and that is Southeast Asia, a very highly populated area. And many of the homes that are built in that area uh, still use fire or coal fired uh, stoves um, and, and that is a it is not they 're not very well vented in any way um, and so there 's been an ongoing effort to replace these stoves. The main reason that they have problems is is that carbon carbon monoxide levels are are extremely high but there 's also other chemicals that are associated with the coal and with the wood and uh, these fire problems are 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 massive and we 're talking Probably they, one of the papers I saw estimated that there's 1.5 billion people that have homes with these types of problems. Now, if you want to talk about indoor air quality problems, if you got a problem that affects 1.5 billion people, that's a real indoor air quality problem. So there's been a massive effort to replace these stoves with much more efficient and much better ventilated uh, stoves that will go out through the roof or through other, uh, uh um, piping out to the outside and it allows the the individuals that live in these homes to could be more satisfactorily uh healthy and then they see a, a, in one of the papers that I saw there were a lot of uh, uh studies now showing how the, this has affected the health of the individuals and and really longevity as well people actually living long, longer because they they no longer are exposed to these on a day-to-day basis and that's particularly true uh, for women, uh, which is the you know obviously those are the individuals who are mainly working on the stoves themselves and spend most of the time in the house. So it's a uh, it's a really different issue. Uh, now, if you go to Europe, uh, uh, the concerns there are are really different in the sense of of, of the uh, from the United States in the sense that uh, they they have a, 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 a controlled most of the uh, what I would call the normal indoor air quality problems. Now they're getting into more specifics about what we're going to do in terms of these net zero and lead and green buildings, uh which have their own issues with regards to indoor quality. And so they've been building those for a number of years. So Europe has been taking the lead in terms of a lot of these types of issues with regards to problems with green buildings. And of course, North America, you're familiar with what the issues are here. The interesting thing is our perspective is uh, is not necessarily always the same as as you would expect. The researchers tend to be more looking forward, whereas many of the practitioners, quite frankly, are looking backwards. And when I say that, I mean that the, the, uh, the uh, re- researchers are looking at issues like, like I said, phthalates and SBOCs and things that they, they know that haven't been measured accurately up until now, and they're looking at methodology for doing the measurements. Practitioners, many of the presentations were about, guess what, mold. Not an unusual subject for a practitioner to still be looking at, and that's still an, uh, a, 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 I think, somewhat of a disconnect between where we're going and where we've been, and I think a lot of practitioners have to make that shift in terms of looking at things that are going beyond the, the, uh, the issue that's been the, uh, the one for the last ten years. If I can, I just I did look up the the, uh, the offer of that paper that I mentioned about smartphones since we were talking about it is Professor Robert Steele and Andrew Clark. And then their paper is a real-time, composite, healthy building measurement architecture drawing drawing upon occupant smartphone-collected data. So they're, they're starting this type of research, but I think it has incredible, incredible potential, and I'm going to keep, uh, keep in touch with, uh, with the Professor uh, Steele to make sure we see where that, where that is going. How do you spell
0: steel? Steele?
2: S-T-E-E-L-E. S-T-E-E. and then Clark, does it have an E? It does at the end, yeah. Very, very British in that regard. <laughs> no I'm okay. back on, Joe.
1: Okay, great, Carl. Let me, let me. I will do a follow up with Don. Then I'd like to hear more about the James Scott paper. Sorry, we lost you there. But uh, Don, a quick follow up. You, you mentioned that you know the practitioners are a little behind the researchers, and I don't know. I got to kind of. Put in a a little clip for the practitioners, only in that I think the general public is even further behind the practitioners than the practitioners are behind the researchers, and a lot of our practitioners are responding to issues from the general public. Does ISIAC or any of these other, uh, IAQA or any of the others, do we have any plans for trying to help educate the public a little better? So that, you know, they're the ones ultimately driving the the market, Um, or maybe you have a suggestion for practitioners who are getting these calls from the public about how they can help move the public forward a little bit so the practitioners can move a little closer to where the researchers are. Well,
2: you're absolutely right, Joe. I mean, the, the the practitioners that I know in in North America are definitely following what it is that the that the the public is, and particularly building owners and building managers are asking for. Um, yes, I think uh, there is going to be more of a public effort on the part of both ISIAC and IEQA to to interact with the public, particularly with uh, regards to what type of research uh, is coming up. Uh, one of the examples uh, it was that. Uh, a lot of the um, uh, within in June, there was a a very a series of articles in the uh, Chicago Tribune that talked about the relationship between fire retardants being used in certain materials, and the political contributions that those poli- that those fire retardant manufacturers were making to politicians who controlled whether or not those those uh, regulations uh would go forward for what fire retardants. Some of the people that were quoted in there talked about some of the issues. Uh, there were ISIAC members, there were IQA members, there were AIHA members. Talked about some of the problems with fire retardants. So you're going to see people you start getting things in the Chicago Tribune. It'll be in the New York Times. It'll be in the you know, Los Angeles Times. Before you know it, you're going to see people start asking questions of practitioners. or what are we going to do about the fire retardants in you know in my in my uh, furniture? So I think that's part of the efforts that's going on. I think the internet, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter, uh, you know Facebook, all these other um, uh, social media uh, areas are being entered into by, by IAQA, ISIAC, and AIHA because of the uh, lack of communication that has occurred in the past between the practitioners, the researchers, and the public. So I think you're going to see much more of that kind of thing take place. I can tell. For example, that Cliff wanted me to spell out those names because he's going to look on Google and find out where those individuals are and what they're writing. And that's a perfect example of exactly what the public can do in terms of getting information about new and exciting research that's taking place out there.
1: Great. Thank you, Don. I appreciate that. Now, Carl, can you quickly tell us what James Scott's presentation was about, and then we'll dig down a little deeper after we take our halftime break and thank our sponsors. Sure. Sure. Um,
4: it just uh, in a couple of sentences at IAQA in March, he talked about how there's more mold and bacteria out there than anybody ever dreamed and could even be detected because we had a limited library of ones that have been studied and known. And uh, as part of his doctorate, um, he discovered 200 and some new ones. And he was told by uh, during the defense of his doctorate that. Uh, of uh, the so that uh, he would hold that record for a long time, but within about three or four years, it was it was broken eighteenfold. So there's a huge amount of information out there. Uh, ten times there's ten times more mold and bacteria in and on our bodies than we have cells in our bodies. So that really changes that. That really changes our perception of oh my God, there's some mold on a sample. What do I have to do? Do I have to burn down my house, or do can I ignore it? Um, so what he did now on this study is kind of go, you know, very specific. How do we know things are here? Uh, Don mentioned dust sampling uh, a few minutes ago, and he looked specifically at that. Collect a, a, a quantity, some quantity unknown of dust, send it to the lab and see what's there. Uh, is there mold there? Are there allergens there? Uh, this is becoming more of a hot topic because some of the medical associations are w- are looking at doing dust sampling for allergens, for example. Well, what Dr. Scott found was that you need a much larger sample of dust, well mixed, and then take a small portion of that before you can even get anything with any kind of accuracy. Right now, with the smaller amounts, and then the even smaller portion of that that's analyzed, you know, we're, we're looking at plus or minus thirty, forty, fifty percent. That's that's unusable data. What he did was he found that for uh, glucans and endotoxin, mold and bacteria, that in a 150 milliliter sample of dust, just to get down to a 20 percent error rate. When I asked him about the allergens. And uh, you said it's even more scattered, and mold is even more scattered from that. So while we're learning more and more, like Don was just talking about, and there's more people looking at it, what we're finding, or what they are finding, the researchers, is that we they really have to take a closer look at their analytical methods because the specificity and the precision that they had assumed in the past isn't always there but they 're on top of that figuring out so that hopefully we can get some um, uh, sampling data that that has true meaning uh, without a lot of unknowns and hidden implications in it and uh, it, Scott is my one of my new heroes now because of what he 's doing and uh, he's doing really important work on the macro scale and the micro scale both
1: great oh well, thanks carl let's uh, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors and We'll be right back with Carl Grimes and Don Weeks. We're talking about Healthy Buildings 2012. I messed that up in my intro, but uh, Healthy Buildings 2012, they're just back from Australia. Yeah! Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com.
3: The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org.
1: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
3: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com and, of course, our marquee sponsors.
1: Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com
3: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com Clean
3: Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, dot com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and
1: products. Okay, we're back with our guests Carl Grimes and Don Weeks. I'm going to turn it over to the Z-Man for a follow-up question we've talking about Healthy Buildings 2012.
0: Thanks, Joe. Carl, before you got uh, you, you dropped off the line, I had posed a question uh, to both you and to uh, Don. And really what the question was is were there any noteworthy differences of concern between what we are concerned about in North America and what uh, the rest of the world, the other hemispheres, are concerned about indoor quality air quality-wise, and Don uh, commented on indoor fires and stoves and, and so on and so forth. I was wondering if there was anything different than that that you picked up.
4: Uh, yeah, Cliff, there was. Uh, and was similar, I caught the, the tail end of what Don was saying, and I, I would agree with him on that. Um, I, I spent some time in Australia with some people that I have known or come, came to know and that sort of thing, and so I'm coming at it from that perspective, more from the research side of it. And they aren't nearly as concerned about mold as we are generally here in the U.S. Now, I know that on some of the, the groups that I've been involved with, uh, there are people in Australia that are just as impacted as they are here, but it, it doesn't have the intense singular focus that uh, that mold does here. So they they tend to look at and consider other sources of exposure more than more than we do here, which tends to be pretty much, pretty much mold centric from the uh, public side and the public perception. And just flipping back, just uh, very briefly on the need to educate the public, uh, this is a critical critical need because the public. Doesn't have the resources that the researchers or the practitioners do in terms of education and quality of information, and they're doing the best they can. They can, and they're the most highly motivated to find out what's going on because it's not just out of research curiosity; it's out of real life needs. How do I how how do I continue to pay my mortgage and take care of my family if I can't work because of Um, and they need the help and the education and the information that, yes, mold is a very serious problem, but it's not the only problem, and we need better information and education for them so they can um, have a better chance of addressing the real issue rather than coming up with a good solution but to the wrong problem.
1: Cliff, do you have a follow-up?
0: Yeah, actually, I've got a follow-up question and comment, and uh, it, it ties into actually something that Don had said. You know, Don had mentioned about these articles in the Chicago Tribune and fire retardants and you know the hazards of them uh, tied in with political contributions. And I, I, what concerns me about it is, you know, certainly if it's corruption, you know, that needs to be exposed. But what I'm concerned about is how much media was involved with uh, the the mold situation you know uh, you know you had the the shows on sixty minutes and it was in the news and and it really created this sensation and I think that sometimes the news is just looking for stories uh, and looking for something that's going to sell newspapers or sell advertising as opposed to uh, being really concerned with uh, accuracy and I was just wondering if you could comment on that.
4: Yeah, that's a, that's a whole topic for a whole series of shows. But one of the things that really, that points up the need, that points up the need to uh, get the researchers and the practitioners talking so that we have something that is more um, more uh, available and accessible to the public so they can understand what's going on and, and clarify this so that they aren't so... Uh, so that they don't have the media and the internet and all the variety and diversity there to, to have to sort through, so they can have some sort of expert guidance on uh, not so much what it is, but a process to figuring out what's happening to me. That your your question goes right to the heart of the matter, Cliff.
1: Don, did you have? Yeah,
2: a I, yeah. I was going to follow up with that a little bit, uh, Cliff. I, I certainly appreciate the, the that um, you, you're right. I mean, public public uh, newspapers are are looking for stories to obviously sell. Uh, newspapers. Um, in this particular case, I, I think they did a, a fair amount of research before they actually went ahead and published. Uh, is that always the case? No. I mean, if, if this was coming out in uh, any of Rupert Murdoch's newspapers, I might have a different view on the whole thing. But I do think that responsible journalism, uh, who, do, who do talk, responsible journalists who do talk to to researchers, who talk to, to uh, practitioners, who talk to uh, to people who are, 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 manufacturing these products and, and do the research into it are part of the, uh, the story that needs to be, uh, part of what needs to be done in order to get, uh, educate the public, which I think was, was the original question that we talked about here. Um, is it going to be perfect? Certainly not. But I tell you what, ignorance is not a, is not a solution to, to this problem either. So we do need to get information out. Um, the best way is to, through the organizations, professional organizations such as ISIAC, uh, IEQA, AIHA, ASHRAE, places like that. And these are the types of people that the Chicago Tribune were talking to. So I do think they did a responsible job in this particular case. Is that always going to be the case? No, it's not.
1: Don, I want to follow up on the phthalates issue, and I want to direct it to a growing area with respect to energy conservation and that is the the spray foam applications do you know i assume that they've got some kind of fireproofing in them um but i'm wondering if you know if that would be uh, a a reservoir or a a potential source for these phthalates indoors in indoor environments
2: Yes, I mean, uh, many of the building materials, including these foam insulate insulation, uh, will have phthalates. But in many cases, they're at relatively low levels. The problem isn't necessarily the application. It's more about the disintegration of it over a period of time. When it does start to disintegrate, these types of phthalates become uh, mixed in with the dust that's on the floor. And now you have kids crawling on the floor. They are exposed in that regard. Or they become airborne and people breathe them in. So it's not so much the insulation, the actual installation of the materials. It's the disintegration over a period of time, deterioration of them, which is what's causing many of the difficulties. So my suggestion would be look at the foam insulation that you're you're purchasing if you're in the public or if you're in in a building uh, uh, management role and and determine whether or not uh you can maintain this material in such a way that it will not in the long run deteriorate to the point of emitting uh, some of these uh, phthalates and SVOCs and other materials of that nature Don, i 've got a question Do
0: you know what form these phthalates are in uh when they 're admitted during building disintegration? Is this a particulate is this a gas you know what form is it in do you know?
2: In most cases, it's in the dust. It's uh, it's generally disintegrating into into the dust, and then the dust becomes airborne. It it it, it gets disintegrated even further by you know, by pressure from people stepping on it or other surfaces, and then it gets it becomes airborne in that fashion. But in general, when it's deteriorating initially, it's going to be in a dust format. Okay, particular, and
1: then. And then- Don, as a, an industrial hygienist, how good are we? I mean, Carl mentioned earlier that Dr. Scott had a presentation on some of the analysis of dust with respect to allergens and, and other microbial uh, contamination. How good are we at identifying the phthalates in the dust? We're still working. I mean, basically one of the papers that I've
2: listened to were, are still working on what I would call refining the techniques for picking up these materials. So... At the moment, there are surrogates for it. I mean, we can look at other types of chemicals that are in the, in the chem, in the, uh, in the, uh, dust con- uh, contamination. But what we really need to have is the specific method for it. Almost all the methods that you see out there are for airborne. You know, that's nice, but really what we need to know is what's in the dust before it becomes airborne. And therefore we can clean it up before it becomes a problem. So they're still working on it on the research side. Yeah, as I think I've talked to you before, Joe, the advantage of going to these type of conferences is to know what's coming down the line. This will be something that's going to come down the line in two thousand and thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen. so this is kind of a preparation. So start doing your research now and following what these uh, researchers is coming up with.
4: I appreciate so I'd like to follow up on that and go back to the um, the commentary that you had Don on the smartphones. Uh, this is a critically important point here because we can get, is it airborne, is it dust on surfaces, how do we relate it to exposure and to that individual specific person? And if we have a smartphone or an Android or something, some sort of monitoring device on our person, as we go about our daily activities at work, at home, at school, and in between and shopping and so forth, we have an opportunity to see what I'm exposed to compared to what you are exposed to compared to what, Uh, the Z-Man or uh, Dieter or or Joe is exposed to, that would open up a whole new doorway and window of information for all these kinds of questions that we've been talking about
0: today.
1: One more quick follow-up, Don. On the phthalates with respect to the health issue, uh, we have chronic, we have more long-term health issues, and what what types are, are of concern at this point?
2: It is more of a chronic, long-term type of a, uh, problem. Uh, it, it relates to uh, uh, lung function and, and, and the chemicals themselves uh, with they become in part of your system. It can also cause other problems, uh, potentially, nothing definite yet, potentially leading to such issues as liver cancer and things of that nature. Right now there's still a lot of research going on on that. Uh, people are very concerned about it, but they're not really sure exactly how much of a concern is needed. But it is certainly something that is being followed up uh, by the researchers.
1: And this has been I've seen it in, like, baby bottles and, you know, plastic containers. Is this pretty much similar uh, chemistry?
2: It is similar chemistry, but keep in mind that what we're talking about is not just in things that we know for sure have it, like the uh, bisphenol type of uh, baby bottles that, you know, have now been banned. We're talking about products that are used on just about every possible surface that you can think of that's in your house. Um, they're used on, on uh, that has some kind of cloth or clothing. So you're on your grapes, on your carpeting, on your uh, on your sofas. Now, let me make, it, make make this really clear. We're not talking about immediate, you know, for out your sofa type of deal here, okay? Basically what we're talking about is the, these materials do have the potential for causing problems if they disintegrate. If they're not properly treated, if they're not properly taken care of, that's where the issue becomes. Now, if you put it into a fire retardant into a child's um, um, PJs, obviously there's a reason why you're doing it. You know, you want to prevent uh, the child from burning up in a fire. But in the same regard, are you exposing them to potential chemicals? And that's really what the issue becomes. Which is the, which is the priority? Which, what are we going to do about it? And how are we going to address this as a, as a society?
4: Tremendous Well, Yeah, that to me is one of the keys, and that's where it moves away from the science into policy, but the policy has to be informed by the science. Why like conferences, again, like this are so, so critically important. We've got, they've got to figure all this stuff out.
1: It's, it's quite a balancing act. I'm wondering if either of you know, were there manufacturers of these products represented at the conference? I
2: don't remember seeing anybody who's the direct representative of any of the manufacturers. Um, most of the individuals that are there are from universities and from research centers. Now, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be manufacturers' response to these issues, and they certainly should be, Uh, but at the moment, not at this particular conference.
4: I saw a few exhibitors, uh, but I I agree, Don. I didn't see anybody uh, giving any of the presentations that were manufacturers.
1: You know, it's kind of fascinating. Carl and I just came back from the Building Science Corps summer camp, and they had a similar discussion in that, you know, with, with the spray foam and and the pluses and the minuses and, you know, um, do the potential positive uh, outcomes outweigh the potential negative outcomes and, and are the, you know, exactly like we're talking about here with the media and with, in this particular case, that we're talking about standards and how manufacturers of these products, whether it's the DuPonts or the Dials or et cetera, have a very strong, Um, role in seeing certain standards developed, whether it's through ASTM or ASHRAE or whomever. And uh, it sounds like we have very similar um, balancing act to perform when it comes to this issue.
2: Absolutely. uh, This is a a, a direct uh, uh, type of an issue where you're talking about the balancing between fire retardant uh, and chemical exposure. Obviously, the reason the chemicals are put into these products is to prevent, wall, you know, catastrophic fires. Uh, to do the alternative and 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 put in some other types of materials may not work as effectively, and so we have to balance it between that and, and what is the chemical exposure to the individuals.
1: Fascinating stuff, guys. I'm, I'm I think. Cliff, do you have a follow-up? Because I'd like to bring Dieter in if we could and and get his thoughts. Yeah, I,
0: I just have one quick one, and um, it's probably going to be a yes or a no. I'm just looking for a yes or a no uh, from Carl or Dawn. uh I, I guess a couple of weeks ago I was just doing some research on the Internet, and I came across a very interesting article. And, and what it was about was this little girl did a study on watering plants, and I think this is like a kindergarten project. And what she did is she used tap water to water one of these plant seeds, and then she used water that was microwaved uh, to, uh, to water the other one. And what they did is they took photographs over you know time-lapse period of a couple of weeks or whatever, and bottom line was the plants that were watered uh, with the microwave water didn't grow. And it got me thinking about it, and I just wondered whether at this conference or any other conferences, have you heard anything about you know the effects of microwaves? Well, that's a really
4: hot, controversial topic right now, particularly with the advent of smart meters, and it's not being sorted out yet. And studies like that, uh, we have to be very careful with the. Uh, false correlations, that we don't get something that, yeah, we happen to see something associated with something else, and then we, we, we expand that into causation. That's where the researchers in particular need to come in. The practitioners can see things like this, say, in the field, but we need the researchers to really go in and find out, well, what is really going on in that particular situation? Is it plausible or not? and if it is then they need to dig in and find out what's going on in the mechanism and if it's not we need to know that also
1: Don I know no, the answer is yes <laughs> okay. okay all right okay. good okay. Well Don I know you you know you've been attending these international conferences and you you're very familiar with uh, issues like this around the around the world Am I correct? In, in I had heard that uh, in Europe, where they do have done a lot of studies over these issues for a long time, it, that microwaving is not nearly as common uh, when it comes to our foods, et cetera, uh, as it is here in the United States.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Most of the uh, uh, alternative is, is convection ovens. and in, in many of the homes you, you go into, that's what you see. You don't see it. Uh, you don't see the microwaves that you see in the United States. I mean, <laughs> I mean, most of the time I'm staying in a hotel, so my experience is somewhat limited. But even in a hotel or the homes that I've rented over the years in Europe, uh, you don't see that kind of, of, uh, of uh, prevalence of microwaves, much more of the convection ovens and much more of the standard ovens than you, than you do in the United States.
1: Now, do you know if that's because of concerns about how healthy microwaving is or is it uh, maybe generation of power and, and how much power they use?
2: I don't think it's a generation of power issue. I think it's the concerns a little bit about microwaving itself, and I think it's actually a matter of taste. Uh, a lot of people are not really, you know, not a big fan of microwave food, like, frankly, okay. and okay. so they don't they don't tend to go to that for that kind of serve, that kind of uh, of uh, appliance in their house.
1: And one more final one, Don, before we go to roundup, with respect to these phthalates in the indoor environment. Um, Do your standard cleaning methodologies, um, maybe high-efficiency vacuuming, wet wiping with soap and water, do these help in um, lowering the, the amount of phthalates in the dust and in the air for indoor environments?
2: Well, it, that's a that's a two part uh, question in this, or answer, I should say. And first of all, yes, it, it does help initially with that. But keep in mind, it's split to mold in that sense, and that, that if you don't address the the source, uh, you're still going to have a repetition of this, and so you're going to be doing this vacuuming more than once. So, really, getting to the source of the problem is really what's re- what's necessary, and and that really determines that, you know whether or not you're going to do renovations or whether you have to do something in regards to, as I mentioned before, the deterioration of these materials, if the materials are deteriorating, they will continue to admit these type of phthalates and therefore you'll have it in your dust and therefore you have to clean it up again. So your best bet is to get rid of the the original source
1: of the problem. Again, that emphasizes the the need to make sure that we live in dry environments and, and don't allow moisture to break down the building products that we have in our homes. That's correct. All right, gentlemen, this has been a lot of fun, very interesting, and I'm sure Dr. Wow will have something to add. We're going to go to a roundup.
2: Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw, high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut 'em him out, ride him in, raw,
1: our technical director. Dr. All right, Dr. Dietrich Weyl, W-E-Y-E-L. I don't think I pronounced that properly, uh, Dieter. Some people can't figure out how to spell your last name there. Dieter? Well, uh, there is a
5: very good reason. I'm one of about 40 or so People in the whole United States with that crazy last name—it is a very rare name, even in Germany. Huh. But it is W, like in whiskey. And I'm using the uh, uh, the alphabet over here: uh, Echo, Yankee, Echo, Lima. W E Y E L. That's the way it is spelled, and I had no say in the matter. <laughs> <laughs> So, on my birth certificate. My well, God, I have a whole page full of, uh, not questions, but comments. Well, and so on. i leave
1: his time to you, so go ahead and get started. I, and, uh... Uh,
5: yeah. Uh, we, we touched on it, the first one, and in the, uh, Carl mentioned that one. You know, we have the uh, hypersensitive people in our population. I have no idea how to protect them. Nobody else does. Not because I'm the only one, but it is just unbelievable. There are people who react to this and that and the other. Uh, Anyway, I also want to say hello to our friends in Finland and Australia, as they say down there. And uh, I like the other one I have written down here. Now we have semi-volatile organic uh, chemicals or compounds. We have, now we have also S. MVOCs, right? Those are the semi-microbial volatile organisms. Hey, either the damn thing is volatile or it isn't. If I measure it in the air, it volatiles. <laughs> <laughs> there, is no, there are no ifs and buts about it. I, I'm wearing it. I'm looking at it, a ring which is made from silver. I don't know. It's not 100% silver. But from that ring... Some atoms or molecules are jumping off from that one. So there is a the vapor pressure in those. And on your gold rings, by the way,
4: the same th- uh, uh, thing. Well, if it turns your finger green, then there's obviously an emission. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, now now we come
5: to the next thing. That little girl with the water, she should microwave it. She should also boil it because while you are boiling it, you drive off uh, whatever else is in there. Um, but um, that would be a, a, a good thing. I don't. I don't think this is a good study. Nor am I impressed with anything that was published in the uh, Chicago newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I tell you one thing: I am. I am concerned about plastics. Everything we touch and do nowadays—it's unbelievable. Some of my mail comes in plastic. My, my ground meat, the chicken, uh, my potatoes, the carrots, uh, the broccoli, everything is in these, my peanuts, everything is in these damn plastic. Thing. In fact, the other day I bought some peanuts in a glass jar. I like that better. <laughs> um, but um, the other thing is, finally, and Joe knows me about that, finally we have a good use for these. Damn cell phones. (laughs)
0: Uh, uh,
5: uh, I heard that. I I attended a NIOSH uh, meeting, National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, meeting here in Pittsburgh. And a epidemiologist from the University of Pittsburgh, in fact a former colleague of mine from the Graduate School of Public Health, mentioned that. And he had the numbers. In the next 20 years, everybody has two of those damn things. I don't know what you why you need a two, the second one for, and um, yeah, I turn mine off usually. But I I see my neighbor. She is a nice lady. The other morning, I was cutting the grass. She jumps in her car, starts the engine, and turns on her telephone. Yeah. <laughs> oh wait a second! <laughs> but I think it is a I think it is a wonderful. It could be a wonderful tool for what Carl described and Don described. That is incredible. And we have sensors today which can transmit the uh, messages. And what I like about it is we are not having the little girl who uh, uh, microwaves water and doesn't use the other one. Um, Maybe be sure to measure the rain and measure all the crap that is in there as it comes. Out. <laughs> my my tomatoes are doing quite well, but um, uh, uh, that that I think that is an excellent idea. All right. We'll uh, we we mentioned the moisture. We all know it, and, you know a mold spore or two will not kill you, and there is no problem with that. But you don't, and you should not live. Uh, in a house that is wet, where you know, continuous exposure to all kinds of molds, heaven knows what they are, are in there. The other thing that bothers me, and I see it, is plastics in the damn microwave. We talked about microwave. Yeah. Now there you have a plastic container. Now you heat that damn thing to something like 200 and some degrees or something like that, I don't like it. I have a microwave, which I don't think I have used in the last five or so years. And there are so many plants in front of it, I can't even get to it. So (laughs) it it doesn't bother me. Uh, Fire retardants. uh, Oh, the, the other thing I have over here, guys, is the spray foam uh there is a uh, i measured i measured exposures to chemicals when i was a, an employee um uh at the Bayer Chemical Corporation when we applied spray foam man you better watch out what you are doing <laughs> this is a nasty operation and you just can't put a uh a, a paper um, respirator over your nose and perhaps your mouth—that uh, doesn't—that doesn't work. You gotta watch it. The other th- a, a, a question is, and I—I'm not up to date on this. This is 30 years ago when I measured foam applications. The other thing is, I don't know. Uh, I think the polyurethane foams are incredibly stable. When compared to the formaldehyde foam. And I remember the old, the original urea formaldehyde foam, very inexpensive. You put it in, the insulation was fantastic. The only thing was, a couple of years later, the insulation was, uh, the insulation properties were gone, and the formaldehyde was in your house. I guess that will kill the silverfish and some other uh, six or uh, eight uh, uh, legged uh, creatures that are in your house. But you got to watch out um, about that. The other one is inhalation, and we said it, and it's it's almost a cliche by now. Yes, inhalation. You got to breathe. You can protect your skin without real big problems. You can prevent eating stuff without not many problems. You got to breathe, and you don't want to go uh, around the, in this world uh, with a good respirator on. So we got to watch out what is going to get into the air, and I guess my naphthalene, or I don't even know what it is, my mothballs, the naphthalene, or what is the other one is
0: one 12 chlorobenzene.
5: Yeah, one two chloro- dichlorobenzene. I guess that is a semi. It's an SVOC, right?
0: Yes. Don't oh, know. I think they're heavier they're they're very yeah, they have very, very low vapor pressure, so I know they do that's
5: why they last so long in fact, that reminds me I have to buy another pack, and my God, I can't believe it a pound of that stuff is
2: eight dollars. Right. <laughs> wow. wow here's something that would blow your mind. Most of the money in the rest of the world is made out of plastic, theater, so you're going to have to get used to plastic money now. Uh,
5: well, yeah, I happen to have also in my pocket. I don't have it in my pocket right now, but in a new world that I have, there's also plastic money in there. But, yeah, I remember when I was in Vietnam, I exchanged, I think, $100 into dongs, And I was a multi-millionaire.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Their their nickel nickel is... A multi-millionaire multimillionaire in dung, no less. 20,000
5: dong to a dollar or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And as a matter of fact, I happen to have a couple of their currencies. There is a plastic picture of uh, Ho Chi Minh in there on the bottom right. And I guess they are pretty tough to duplicate, I would say, or to forge whatever you want to call it well, has... uh, yeah yep, yep, I, I, I i'm a, I, I know i know i'm 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 wearing right now a pair of glasses with polycarbonate in it, and if you listen to the polycarbonate story, there is bisphenol a that's the stuff that is used that is a precursor of making polycarbonate. And I'm looking at polycarbonate over here, verbatim, DVDs and CDs, so <laughs> it's all we are surrounded us. by it.
1: All around us. Oh, guys. And
5: the telephone I'm having in my hand is not made from wood, stone, or steel. <laughs>
1: That's right. That's right. Well, guys, let me, uh, let's get you the last word here. Let's start with Carl. Uh, anything that you'd like to add before we go? Just to my thanks and
4: appreciation to everybody that I met in, uh, in Australia, and particularly to Professor Lydia Marowska, who was the president of Healthy Buildings 2012. What a wonderful, delightful person she is, and what an incredible conference she put on. And I want to thank the koalas that were so cooperative to me and the kangaroo that allowed me to eat it for dinner.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't know who to congratulate on this one. Do I congratulate Carl for not being president of IAQA anymore or Don for becoming, or maybe both the new president? I think it's probably
2: both. I think it's probably (laughs) both. I, I I will say that, that I had a wonderful time in Australia and uh, even had the chance to uh, give uh, Carl his just desserts by getting him a souffle at one of our French restaurants there. (laughs) And uh, we're, uh, uh, we're looking forward to uh to to the next year of being the uh, president of uh, IQA and if anyone has any questions uh, about the direction where IQA is going and certainly contact me and I'll be glad to talk to anybody or email anybody who wishes to, to discuss that.
4: You know and I'm looking forward and enjoying it thoroughly that you are now the president. <laughs> and,
0: okay.
1: You know I just want to publicly thank both of you. I know how time consuming it is. I know people like me can be a pain in the ass from time to time and I do appreciate your service and uh, I think everybody does out here even those of us that uh, may complain from time to time. So thanks for all you do for um, IAQA and for the indoor environment and uh, I know Carl you spent an arm and a leg to get over Australia. I'm sure you did too Don and uh, we really want to thank you also for joining us here on IAQ Radio. Thank you. All right, gentlemen. Well, hey, we're we're going to take a little break from IAQ Radio, our traditional August uh, two weeks off here. Roxy V's going on a little vacation. Uh, I'll be here uh, taking care of the the summer break at Indian Lake, which is coming up. Not this week coming, but the following week after that. And uh, then we'll be back. We've got some unbelievable guests lined up, uh, including uh, more from... Don and Carl over the new year here, but uh, what a great lineup we've got coming at you for the rest of 2012. Before we go, I also want to thank the Z-Man, Clive Zlotnick. Another great show. Hey, great show today, Thanks. We've got a couple comments in already. Of course. Roxy V, Val Bender, enjoy your vacation.
5: Sure, I will. (laughs) Okay,
1: and uh, last but not least, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. Uh, John Lapotere I saw was on there. I saw uh, Mr. Bradley, one of our previous guests on there, and several others. We really appreciate you joining us here every week uh, here on IAQ Radio. Come back in three weeks for the next episode of IAQ Radio.